Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Mike, this week, well, we'll obviously look back at the action from the Italian Open in Rome. We saw titles from Rafael Nadal and Iga Sviantec. We also saw a first career WTA 1000 title from Canadian Sharon Fishman in doubles. But first, our guest this week, veteran American doubles player and also tennis channel analyst Nick Monroe. Yeah, this is a great episode to sort of dive into the doubles world between uh, what Nick has to say about his career and, and making the choice, uh, you know, the very purposeful choice at the age of 30 to focus his career solely on doubles. Uh, and then also later we'll talk about Sharon Fishman's great run in Rome, as you mentioned, biggest title of her career at age 30. So doubles definitely getting a lot of love this week on Matchpoint Canada. And uh, and to start having Nick Monroe was, was really cool because he's sort of a double agent, as I called him when we spoke. He's still an active professional tennis player, but also very much involved in uh, Tennis Channel as an analyst there and bringing his expertise of what it's like, not just to be a former player, but a current player and kind of occupy both of those roles. So uh, it was great for him to stop by. First time we've spoken to Nick. And uh, let's have a listen to uh, my interview with him this week and we can chat about it afterwards. This week on Matchpoint Canada, I'm pleased to welcome someone who simultaneously occupies the role of professional tennis player and tennis analyst. He's a four-time doubles champ on the ATP Tour, reached the quarterfinals of both the U.S. Open and last year at Roland Garros as well. Nick Monroe, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. really appreciate it. It's great to have someone on the podcast who can provide some insight from uh, both sides of the sport. So definitely looking forward to hearing both of those perspectives from you. Um, maybe let's just start off with what 2021 has been like for you in your dual role as tennis player and tem- tennis commentator, uh, given all the restrictions and uh, an ongoing pandemic that we're still unfortunately dealing with. Yeah, I think for a player, it's been it's been a little bit difficult, but in the beginning, especially, but getting used to it, you know, as far as going to Australian Open, had a 14 day quarantine. Uh, one of my flights was the was the flight that had COVID cases on it. So I had a hard lockdown for 14 days. So that was one of the most difficult times for sure. Just trying to figure out how to work out in the hotel room and what to do for 14 days and, and trying to prepare for a Grand Slam. Um, and then, you know, go ahead and leading into the Australian Open and then moving forward to all the other tournaments, just be only being, being able to go from the courts to the hotel back and forth, you know, we've all been in a bubble. Every player has been in a bubble and just trying to, you know, get acclimated to not, you know, being able to go around the city to have dinner or even just check out the city. Um, so being kind of stuck, but, you know, we've been able to do what we love to do as far as tennis professionals. And so it's just to be able to do what we love is, is been fun to be back on the court. And then obviously now having a few more fans back in the stands, whereas, you know, we see in Madrid, uh, about 15% back in the stands. And when I was playing in Marbella a few weeks ago, there were fans and, and uh, so that that's been fun. And then on the, on the commentating side of things, obviously when I'm, you know, I'm here in LA right now for tennis channel commentating for Madrid. And so, you know, when you're commentating, it's good to have fans and have that extra energy it, throughout the match that you're able to kind of lean on when commentating the match. And it's great to see the players just get, get super involved and engaged with the fans. Um, and, you know, and, and also for me, as far as commentating at some of these tournaments, um, it's been 
tricky because I haven't been able to commentate while I've been in the tournament. But then once I've gotten out of the tournament, I've been able to do it mainly because of the bubble process for players and media are two kind of separate bubbles. Um, so if you're in the player hotel and whatnot, then you're, then you're in that. And then once you're done, okay, then you can move to a media type type role. Um, so it's been fun to kind of navigate both. Um, it's almost like you know, you're an again. undercover, undercover agent. Hey, you know, yeah, player, yeah, and yeah. Then you come out and then you can divulge all of what you've learned in there. No, absolutely. In some ways, absolutely. And I'll, and also I, I work for Nike as a Nike scout um, and rep. So kind of an undercover agent in, in that role as well with Nike. But no, it's, um, it's uh, you know, again, just trying to bring the perspective, player's perspective to commentary, um, you know, obviously practicing with the players, kind of knowing the ins and outs of how what the gym looks like, the food, you know, what we're dealing with day in and day out. Um, just letting you know fans understand kind of what we're going through and I think that's fun I was looking at uh, just your schedule over the past month uh, you played in Spain Serbia tournaments in Italy and Portugal I, I can't even imagine leaving my city here let alone my country at the moment <laughs> how, how have you found the travel between those uh, European countries and and what's the level of precaution like over there I mean in some ways you must be getting sort of you know you're used to it I guess at this point but how comfortable do you feel as you're going from place to place like that yeah, pretty comfortable at the moment. I mean, basically, before you go to the first country, let's say going to Marbella, I was playing in Miami, then I went to Marbella, you just have to get a COVID test within 48 hours of your flight. Then once we get to the hotel of where we're going at that tournament, we have to get tested on arrival. And so then you have to wait in your hotel room for the 24 hours, however long it might take to get your negative result. And then once you do that, then we're getting tested every 48 hours or 72 hours. Um, um, and then we're able to, you know, keep playing along that route. So, you know, and then moving on to each tournament from Marbella, then to Belgrade, then to uh, Rome and to Lisbon, basically you just need to get a test before you leave that country to go to the next one. So just navigating to each country hasn't been, you know, anything negative or tough to do. Um, you know, just got to make sure you have your negative COVID test and then you can move on to the next, to the next tournament. And, and obviously for tennis players, we're used to traveling, week in and week out and you know just happy that we're finally able to do it again so whatever it takes if we need a COVID test if we need you know whatever we might need to go ahead and keep doing what we love to do um we're figuring it out yeah that's a good point you guys are travel experts I should say even during normal times I'm pretty much tied to home with the, the kids these days, so it doesn't make that <laughs> yeah. much of a difference for me but right. uh, I want to go back to earlier this season at the Aussie Open uh, you had a good run there as well and uh, defeated a couple of our Canadian guys in the second round. So hopefully our listeners will forgive you for uh, knocking out Vash <laughs> and Chapeau. Uh, what's your take on the, the rise of, of tennis in our country up here in the north and, and how prominent it's sort of become over the last few years with, you know, not just the Milos and the Vashiks on the men's side and Jeannie Bouchard certainly helped put tennis on the map here as well, but the young crew that's, that's coming along behind them now. No, I mean, it, it, it's awesome to see, you know, you have Chapeau and Felix, two guys that can, or will be winning grand slams in the near future. And, and they're just pushing each other along. Right. I mean, I think they're, they're such good friends as well, which is awesome to see just, you know, they, they want to see each other genuinely do well. Um, you know, and they're both so talented, right? Like they both bring a different kind of game style. Obviously Chapo is extremely flashy and, and Felix is, a, you know, obviously going to make a lot of balls be super athletic and they're both athletic. So it's just fun to watch them. Um, you know, obviously they were, 
you know, younger and watching Milos and Vashik kind of do their thing coming up. And so, you know, to have those four guys still still doing what they do and pushing each other is awesome to see. And and as you said, you know, Jeannie Bouchard kind of put women's Canadian tennis on the map. But now with Bianca Andrescu and Leila Fernandez, you know, th- those two women are, are, are working hard and, and doing some extremely great things. So, you know, for Canada and for just the game of tennis, it's awesome to see just how close those players are, um, your Canadian players are together, men and women. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of countries are following suit, right? You know, a lot of the Spanish players, they're, they're genuinely happy for their players and, and training together, right? The Americans are training together, Spanish players training together, Canadians. So it's, uh, it's a fun dynamic um, now in, in, in tennis. A lot more uh, Canadian flags in the draws than, than back when you started. That's for yeah. sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel older, but uh, you do have a big birthday coming up in, uh, in about a year's time. So you still have time to enjoy what's yeah. left of your 30s. How do you feel about turning the big 4-0? And did you ever think you'd still be playing professional tennis at that time? Yeah, I mean, I'm 39 now. I, I uh, you know, I knew when I went to college I wanted to play professional tennis. I mean, obviously, it's something that I've always dreamt about as a little kid, you know, being number one in the country in juniors then going through college and just trying to work as hard as I could. Number one, to graduate. You know, I wanted to definitely graduate and then um, work as hard as I could to be ready for professional circuit. So when I graduated in 2004 from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, I, I uh, you know, embarked on a career and focused on singles. And then basically when I turned 30 years old, um, I made it to about 250 in singles for my last couple of years. And so when I turned 30, I decided to go full doubles and I'd always done well in doubles um, in juniors and in college and felt like, you know, that's something that, you know, as a little kid, you always envision playing the grand slams and playing the big tournament. So I always felt like in doubles, I could do that. And so was able to kind of move up the rankings quickly within a year and get into the grand slams and whatnot. So, you know, then when I hit 31, I was in the slams and, and that's what you want where you want to be. And so at 39, my body feels great. Um, you know, I feel healthy. I, you know, I get to hit a yellow ball over a net for a living and travel the world. So, you know, I do get asked that question a lot is, you know, how, how long do you see yourself playing? And I, and I always say until the wheels fall off, you know, this is uh, you don't get to, you don't get to, you know, play this sport forever. So while you can, and while I can travel the world and, and play tennis, I, I will be doing that. And, um, and again, it's just uh, trying to enjoy the moment, really just embracing it. Um, you, you know, I do look at Tom Brady, 43 years old. And I look at these guys, everyone's playing later in their career, taking care of their bodies, getting more massages, physio work, yoga, stretching, all the hydration, sleep, all those little things make a huge difference. And, and, uh, and again, at 39 years old, my body feels like I'm back at 29. So, uh, so I, I feel like I can keep going for quite a while. Well, we're about the same age, but I got to say, you make it look easy. It's not uh, that way for us <laughs> average 40 year olds. Okay. Um, and plus, you know, not to make you feel bad because Danny Nestor played doubles till he was 46 and he was still doing pretty darn good too. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to mention, uh, you talked about playing college uh, tennis when you were younger. Uh, not many people or not the majority, you know, go that route. And, and it certainly seemed like it worked out for you. We've got a lot of young Canadians who head down south to the States and, and choose to go the college uh, route as well. What was it that made that seem attractive for you? And when you look back on it, uh, do you feel that was the best decision for your development, not just as a tennis player, but I guess, um, you know, in life as well. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, one of the main reasons I went to North Carolina was I was just a huge North Carolina fan growing up the basketball team. I, I love watching the Tar Heels. And, uh, and so when I was in high school, again, 
you know, going through 14, 16, 18s, I was always, I was 14s. I was number one in the country, 16s, 18s. I was top 10 in the country. And, but I still knew I wanted to go to college mainly because I wanted to make sure I got a degree, had an education, something to fall back on, let's say, you know, post professional tennis career. Um, Cause you never know what's going to happen in tennis. You know, maybe you get hurt in your first year, maybe you get hurt in your first six months, whatever it might be. Um, so I made sure I graduated and then, uh, and I definitely feel like it was the right decision to, to go those four years, you know, also looking back on it too, because now, again, as we're saying, people are playing later in their career. You know, when I went to school, you know, seems a long time ago. And, but in 2000, when I was a freshman at Carolina, you know, people were probably finishing their tennis career around the 32 years old, 31, 32, um, something like that. And so, you know, that was at the time when a lot of the guys I was playing against in juniors were going pro instead of going to college. Right. And so, then, you know, some of them didn't make it and, and then try to had to go to college later on. But I always knew I wanted to go to college, finish that and then give myself the best chance I had. So looking back on it, definitely the right decision. And I still tell, you know, juniors now, like, make sure you go for a year or two, um, you know, enjoy being on a team. You can find the right coaches and, and team to be around to help your game improve. But also you get to go to school and, and get an education and, and experience that and experience the college life. Because let's say even if you just go for two years, when you come out, you're 20 years old. You still have until you're 35, 36, whatever, however long you want to play. I mean, you've got 15, 16, 17 years. So there's plenty of time. There's no rush to, you know, hurry up and jump out there at 18 years old. And also guys are so strong these days so it's it's hard you know you do see okay the the uh, Alcarazes now and the Musettis that are 18 19 years old that can hang with some of the stronger professionals but it's not easy at that age to be able to hang with some of these guys who've been playing pro tennis for 10 15 years and are so strong so it's never a bad idea to go to college get a little bit stronger work on your game and then and then uh, get out there. Oh, well said. It, it seems definitely different in this era with guys' careers lasting so much longer. I mean, I always think back to Jimmy Connors and his big run at the U.S. Open, and no offense, Jimmy, but he looked like he was definitely getting up there at that point, whereas now you yeah. have guys in their late 30s and, and like yourself, super fit, you know, uh, proper diet and, and off-court workouts and training 12 months of the year. It's a, a totally different game now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, you you want to if you want your body to run like a Ferrari, you got to put the right fuel in it. So, you know, diets and hydration and sleeping, all of those little things make a huge difference, because if you're going to, you know, again, you're going to put in four or five hours on the court, an hour in the gym, you need to have just about that much time of recovery as well with massaging, stretching, yoga, things like that. So it's a full time gig, you know, and, and so once you start playing on the pro tour, it's not just you know, you know, some guys come out of high school, or come out of college and say they're going to go play pro and they practice for one hour or something like that. And it's like, no, no, no. To be a top hundred player. I mean, it's a full time job and you really have to you have to live and breathe it. You know, it's got to be everything that you do. And, and and the people around you have to understand that. You got to find ways to make it fun, too, I guess. And, and one of the things I think you've done before, which is definitely fun, is world team tennis. Uh, which really seemed to thrive last summer, sort of taking advantage, especially of, you know, the regular tournaments that weren't happening on both the men's and women's tour. Um, what, what's the appeal of playing that for you? And uh, is that looking realistic to happen uh, this summer? Yeah, the World Team Tennis is uh, obviously <laughs> one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I've now played played a full season for Springfield Lasers, Kansas City Explorers, uh, and then just last season with the Washington Castles. But again, it gives you that college feel. You get to be back on a team again just for a few weeks. Um, 
you know, and you get to feel part of it's, you know, it's two men players, two women's players, you get to feel that team aspect, but um, yeah, I'll definitely be playing again this, this year if I can. And, and, and it's supposed to be happening uh, most likely later in November um, after the Paris masters. And they're looking to do maybe two weeks, this November 7th through the, through the 21st, I believe um, not official, but um, that's kind of when they're looking to do it. And, and so, yeah, the appeal for that is just being on a team again, being able to cheer on your teammates. And so it's, it's so much fun, you know, cause obviously on the road, we're on the road 30 weeks a year, normally by your, you know, not by yourself, but with your doubles partner or your coach or whoever you might be with, but to be in one place or travel to a couple places for two weeks with your teammates is always fun. Uh, w uh, world team tennis has had uh, so many fan friendly, uh, you know, initiatives and, and there were a few others last summer as well. Patrick Muradoglu had a, a good thing going on too with some new rules to kind of engage new fans to right. the court. What, what changes do you want to see in tennis moving forward in terms of either on-court or, or off-court ideas to, to bring more people to the, to the table? No, I mean, I think, it, you know, we're seeing a little bit of it. I think people love to watch doubles. Um, so, you know, in Toronto, my, my good friend Carl Hale is a tournament director there in Toronto, and he does a great job of putting doubles on center court and then therefore tennis channel picks up that coverage and, and people love to watch that. Right. You know, so it's fast. It's, it's uh, you know, within an hour and a half, the doubles is so quick and going and people can really enjoy that. So as far as on, on TV, we'd like to see more doubles on TV. And I think a lot of players would and, and tennis channel along with other networks are doing a better job of doing that. But I think that, um, you know, we do have some up and coming players that are great. I mean, with an Alcaraz Musetti, we have a lot of young players that are flashy and that are doing great things. So even when the Rafas and Federers and whatnot, you know, might when they retire, we still have some good up and coming players. Um, but I think, you know, overall right now, I think it's exciting for, for fans to watch. Uh, we, we like the Hawkeye system, the Hawkeye system of the in and out calls makes it fun because, you know, for a player, we, we get to know for sure if the ball was in or out. But even as fans, they kind of get engaged with it. And now they're doing the Hawkeye in Madrid on center court um, and not on the other courts yet, but just on center court. So, you know, there's different sort of ways that uh, the tennis is making it a little bit more fun. And I think maybe even playing lets and singles could be fun. You know, that would make it make the match maybe a little bit faster. You don't it wouldn't happen a lot, but you'll still get like two to four lets, maybe a match and and kind of uh, just engages the engages the players and engages the fans and makes it a little bit faster and fun. Yeah, maybe just some little tweaks here and there as opposed to a yeah. major overhaul. I mean, tennis is a great sport for those who watch it and and yeah. and, and love it, but it's getting it out there to people who aren't tennis fans. Uh, yeah. I got hooked recently on the F1 uh, series on Netflix. I don't know if you've caught that or not, but me, my wife, my kids are all suddenly watching F1 racing on the weekends. And if you told me that you know, a few months ago, I never <laughs> would have believed it. But it's, yeah. it's showing you sort of the personalities and whatnot, yeah. uh, you know, behind the scenes. I think something like that with tennis could work wonders to expose well, these youngsters to, you know, the, the tennis fans, casual sports fans out there, too. Yeah, no, 100 percent. I mean, I think just seeing behind the scenes of what players go through and and, um, you know, you know, players do a decent job on their Instagram story showing kind of what they're doing in their daily life at these tournaments. But if if uh channel could pick that up or coverage get a little coverage of behind the scenes that's always fun to see nick uh, before we wrap up with you uh, the next grand slam is is quickly approaching and it, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that they were playing on the clay in paris because of the altered schedule last season 
you had such a great run making the quarterfinals there. Uh, how special was that event for you uh, last fall? And, and how excited are you to get back on the, the courts of uh, Roland Garros? No, it was extremely special. I mean, I, I uh, always loved the, you know, the French Open, loved playing on the Terrebonne 2 there. And, and uh, it was Tommy and Paul and I, it was our first tournament playing together. We never played together. And so we kind of, uh, you know, we've always been good friends. And so it was easy to communicate on the court, know what we wanted to do out there. Um, so, you know, we won what, our first round seven, six in the third, our second round six, two in the third, our third round seven, six in the third. So we had some tight ones that we were able to pull out. But again, that was just, you know, when you're close with your teammates and can, can communicate in pressure situations, that's huge. Um, and so, no, I'm excited to get back there. Uh, this year I'll be playing with Francis Tiafo. He and I are, have been playing a few weeks together. Now we played in Australian open. Um, we just played in Estoril and, and uh, he's actually extremely excited to to keep playing doubles pretty much for the rest of the year together. He wants to play every event that he's in. He wants to play doubles with me. And and uh, and I and I like that. I like that with Francis. We bring great energy. We've known each other for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, so it'd be fun. It'd be fun to get together there at the French Open with Francis again and and try to make another run. Always nice when you got a consistent partner and someone you know you'll be playing with, and and I'm sure you guys are awesome to watch out there. So, hey, look, enjoy the uh, downtime now that you're back home a little bit and uh, recoup and get ready to go. And uh, thanks for joining us on Matchpoint Canada. It's an inspiring story. It's great to see uh, someone like you out there still not just playing but playing really well. And uh, makes me feel like I got to go and uh, hit some reps or something. Uh, we're done talking here. All right. Well, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and definitely we'll, we'll keep in touch and get together again. Sounds great. There you have it. Mike's interview with American doubles player and analyst for tennis channel, Nick Monroe. And uh, I, I like, obviously you talked about sort of navigating playing through a pandemic, which is different. And especially I think as a doubles player, sort of determining a schedule working around that. And uh, obviously that's, that's a challenge that he's managed. And he reminded me when I was sort of listening back to your interview, it made me think of Canadian Gabby Dabrowski making that conscious decision to decide, you know, I'm a top competitive doubles player. This is the avenue where I'm going to sort of focus my career in and excel in. And that's what uh, Nick Monroe has done as well. Yeah, you and me spoke about this earlier before we hit record. And uh, if, if I've got the option between having a career where I've got to grind it out in singles at futures level and, and challenger level tournaments, or I can play doubles and play all the biggest events, masters events, grand slams. That's a no-brainer for me. I'd rather play all those prestigious venues and be around all the buzz of, of those highest-level tournaments. And that's what Nick decided to do. It's working out great for him, too. He's had such success in his 30s, just making the quarterfinals at Roland Garros last fall at the age of 38. Um, pretty inspiring stuff. And, um, and it was great to hear his perspective on it all. Um, he made that choice. You know, I could continue to grind it out and sort of battle it out, or I could focus on what I'm best at. And he's done that and he's having a blast doing it. Yeah. And obviously uh, one of those products of the, the college system in the States, which has been a successful one. We've seen that from a number of players on the men's and women's side, um, sort of blossoming and taking their career in a strong direction after playing college tennis. It's not the avenue that everybody takes, but I, I think it's a good one to take, especially in, in North America. And we, we see a few of our younger Canadians doing that in Carson Brandstein, obviously. Uh, I believe Jada Boy is also taking the college route. So we have a few doing that very same thing, which I think is a wise choice. And he is pretty, um, 
high on the Canadians himself. He seems uh, quite impressed by Dennis and Felix, Bianca, all of our young Canadians, which is also great. Yeah, I mean, firstly, there, just to comment, uh, we've got tons of Canadians, both male and female, that are playing NCAA tennis. And, uh, you know, if my kids grow up and they turn out to have a knack for tennis and, and want to pursue it, I would wholeheartedly encourage them to get their education while they're at it, or at least go down there and do, you know, the, the bulk of their degree to to have for uh, fallback later. And mm-hmm. you know, I spoke to Carson Branstein lately, and she had a hip surgery just a couple of months ago. Her season looks like it was wiped out, unfortunately but at least she's got the college thing going for her and she's pursuing, I believe a, a degree in law or considering potentially law as a future uh, endeavor for her. And if tennis doesn't work out, if the injuries just get to a point where they've, they've taken their toll, which is going to happen for some people being that it's a very physically demanding sport. Well, Hey, you've got something in your back pocket there that you can go to as opposed to having to start over. Where do I go now? What do I do? All I've known my entire life is the tennis world. So, you know, kudos to players who do that give themselves another avenue. And, uh, you know, obviously for Nick Monroe who's turning 40 next year, he's still going as a professional tennis player, but he does also have that college background that he can use later on. Yeah. Very helpful. Alexis Galler now also comes to mind of of Canadian players going through the college system. I believe wrapping up at NC state this year, which is great. Um, You know, we also talked about you and Nick discussing doubles, um, getting a bit more exposure and having fans more interested and, you know, sometimes we do get the share from like the ATP or WTA accounts, different accounts of these epic doubles points, because you can have such fun exchanges with players at the net, quick reflex volleys. It is actually an exciting form of the sport. And I feel like it's just not out there enough. People haven't seen it enough to appreciate it. I can think of plenty of singles matches that, uh, you know, are kind of turn into snooze fests where fans are not super engaged. I can't say the same for doubles. Most doubles matches I've been to, fans are involved, fans are enjoying the show, and it's a different type of atmosphere, and it's a different type of show. And uh, certainly at the Rogers Cup, now National Bank Open, I should say, moving forward, they always give uh, doubles a fair shake. Uh, Matches on center court in the evening sessions, definitely on the grandstand and the outer courts are packed. Uh, And and you always get a lot of, you know, mix, uh, you know, sort of a diversity between the, the true doubles players and singles players also at our event here in the summer who want to get the hardcourt matches yep. under their belts as well. So you'll see the Rafas and the Novaks uh, and players like that, uh, you know, turning to doubles as well. Same on the women's side where we had, you know, Simona Halep playing with Leila Annie Fernandez the last time the women were here. It's fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, putting them in the right spot, getting some more TV coverage for doubles would be fantastic as well. But uh, I'm never disappointed when I go see doubles live. And uh, it's, it's great to hear these players who choose to make that a, a career option and, and can profit off of that. Not everyone can, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly if it's clicking for you, you can still make a, a pretty good living playing doubles on the, uh, the professional tennis tour. Yeah, no question about it. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Obviously, I have to get to the action in Rome, and we'll start on the men's side. Before we get to another epic final, I will be- begin with the Canadians, uh, because Denis Shapovalov had an epic match of his own against the King of Clay, Rafael Nadal Shap- Shapovalov uh, pushing him three sets and was largely in control of their match um, ahead 6-4-3-1-40 love at one point you think he's closing in on a victory over Nadal which 
I, I think back to some of his signature wins, obviously Montreal 2017 was like the breakout win that put Dennis on center stage. But to me, if he had defeated Nadal here and he did have two match points as well, I would have said this is probably the biggest win of his career, given the stakes of beating him on a clay court. I mean, I'd love to just have that discussion. We can't have it because it didn't happen, but that right. would have been an interesting <laughs> one to see what people thought. It was going so well. And uh, it was like an 8 a.m. match here for us, Eastern time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't catch the first part, but when I tuned in and he was already up a set and then the break in the second, uh, holy smokes, this is fantastic stuff. And of course, I made the mistake, like many of us probably did, of getting a little too eager on Twitter <laughs> and tweeting stuff out that obviously then, you know, we collectively jinxed him in Canada way to go um but it was looking so good and i I don't think you can fault him so much for letting that go i mean i think against anyone else you'd say oh man you know you you use the the choke word maybe or you'd say they they let it go you can't do that against nadal on clay this guy is the greatest tennis player of all time on the surface potentially on any surface that's another debate we can have someday but against him it's never over until you see that you've won that match point Uh, He's always got the ability to get back into it. And even the two match points that Chapeau had, at no point did I feel confident or comfortable in those moments. (laughs) I was still completely like stressed out in those two moments. And uh, you really felt for Dennis. You feel like that's a loss that's going to stick with them for a little while because of what it would have meant. Exactly what you said, the debates and the talk we would have been having, how it would have changed the narrative on his 2021 season that up to now has been you know, somewhat mediocre, I guess you could say, honestly. Um, so uh, you felt for him so, so close. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can take positive from that moving forward. Uh, I did tweet at some point during the match when things were starting to turn in Rafa's favor. You, you kind of wish you could have substituted 17-year-old Dennis into that match who didn't know any better, who didn't have right. all that pressure and, and yeah. understand the big picture yet. It's different now, you know, he's, uh, what, 21 years old, uh, 22 years old. And Mm-hmm. And he's been through a lot and he feels the pressure of being seated high, ranked high, knowing the expectations are on him. Um, I, I do feel for him in a lot of ways. I, I did love his attitude after the match in, in the post-match press conference that he, he was trying to take the positives. He didn't look like absolutely distraught over the loss. And he was trying to pass on the message that, look, I learned about myself that I can beat these guys. I'm right there. I'm hanging on. And one, one aspect of this match that I think was impressive because I I've seen this scenario play out before of players being say up a set and a break against a Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, the big three um, losing that second set and completely fading in the third. And I think plenty of people watching the match after Nadal came back and took that second set, you would think Nadal's going to completely take this match over. It went to a third set tiebreak. He had two match point opportunities in the final set there too. So he didn't get so down on himself, letting the second set slip away. He got right back to work in the third, pushed that match to, I want to say three hours, 27 minutes, which is an absolute marathon. You think about that for just the best of three matches, uh, pretty incredible. So to me, there were a lot of positives to take. I, I thought it was, it, it's odd to say it was probably his best clay court performance of this season and it came in a loss, but I think it is safe to say that this is the best match he has played on clay in 2021. And, and maybe he can think about the way he played and, and build off that momentum leading into Roland Garros. He is going to play again ahead of Roland Garros, but I, I think he can build on that, that loss a lot because he was very, very close. Yeah, and that loss caught Rafa's attention as well. I mean, we'll transition in a moment and talk about this uh, 
this pretty solid final between Rafa and, and Novak. But afterwards, after Nadal had, had beaten Novak, when he had his on-court interview, Rafa said, I got lucky at some moments, uh, you know, in terms of how he won the tournament. I got lucky in some moments, especially against Chapo. So mm-hmm. he, he knew how, you know, that could have been the end of his tournament right then and there. You know, in, instead, here he is getting his, uh, you know, record tying, what, 36th Masters uh, title, uh, not to mention all the other, you know, accolades, which I'll allow you to share being the uh, <laughs> Rafa expert among us. But, uh, you know, Rafa realized how close it could have ended all because of our Canadian here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, then maybe it's a different narrative going into Roland Garros for Nadal, but uh, that is not the case. We should just mention Felix Ojealiasim. I thought he started this tournament in such a perfect way, defeated Diego Schwartzman comfortably in straight sets, which was a, a terrific win to get started in Rome. And then Federico Del Bonas, a player that has not really been on top of mind, I, I think, in the past several years, but his Best surface is clay, and this was the best Masters result of his career, reaches a quarterfinal, Del Bonus beating uh, Felix a uh, 7-6-6-1. And I, it felt like a lost opportunity for Felix to maybe build off a big-time win from Die- over Diego. That's not to take away from Del Bonus. I think he's a solid lefty player, but you look at the way the draw is shaping up after beating Diego, you're thinking, wow, Felix, maybe he can go on a bit of a run here and, and get that clay court game cooking. And uh, it didn't really happen. And it makes me feel like it's another week gone by where you feel like Felix is kind of stagnating. Yeah. I mean, some of the guys he's lost to on clay so far this year, you can say, okay, well, that's understandable. You know, Christian Guerin, solid clay court player, Stefano Pass, obviously we know one of the favorites for Roland Garros this year. Uh, even, you know, Rude is is a fantastic clay court player. He is. This yep. is the first one against Del Bonus where I kind of, you know, the eyebrow went up like, oh, really? And mm-hmm. especially after that victory against Schwartzman that, that got everyone's hopes up as well, thinking this could be a big moment for him. Uh, I mean, Del Bonus, when I think of him, I, I think of him beating Federer years ago. And my God, that was probably like, I want to say 10 years ago at this point in time that he had that big win over Federer. Um, at, at this point, that's a match that Felix, I really think should be winning. Uh, and not going down 6-1 in the final set. So, yeah, troubling for Felix. He's, uh, you know, instead of pushing into that top 20 and and, and looking like he's going to be a contender for the top 10, it seems like that's going to have to wait a while yet before we start talking like that. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I really wanted to see it on this surface. I, I felt like, you know, if we had to pick a service that maybe is Felix's best, you think it should be the clay given his athleticism, the way he can move. But uh, it hasn't really been the case for 2021. There are still a couple tournaments left for him for that to turn, so I'm hopeful, um, but but I have to see it to believe it first. I, I know he's capable of the tennis. We just have to see it on a consistent basis. Uh, we will get to the final, of course, Nadal versus Djokovic. This was edition number 57, which is just mind-boggling the number of times these guys have played together. I uh, played one another, rather, and uh, Nadal winning this one, 7-5-1-6-6-3. Now 10 titles in Rome, 88 all time. And uh, he also now has four events that he's won double digits, which is just crazy to think of. So Roland Garros 13, Barcelona, of course, a few weeks ago, picks up his 12th there. Monte Carlo is 11. And now Rome is 10. Um, you think of That's a lot of some... impressive numbers. there. <laughs> you think of some players in the past, like uh, James Blake, for example, terrific American player, quality player. He had 10 career titles. You look at one player on the tour, 
posting 10 titles at one tournament is is hard to even comprehend let alone doing it at four events um it, it's just ridiculous the numbers nadal sort of says his has his approach i guess to these records is he'll look back at them when his career is over which is probably the way to do it but uh this final to me was pretty high quality and i i love that you know despite the fact this is the 57th time they're showing down i'm not sick of this matchup yet yeah, same. And and I mean, I don't really feel a pull one way or the other. I, you know, see positives to both players' games, uh, many positives, obviously, as well as their, their personalities. And uh, to me, as I was watching it, I was just thinking to myself, like, Mike, you got to just soak these moments in because yeah. they're, they're, they're limited, right? It's not an infinite amount that we're going to continue to see this rivalry, although it sure looks like we're going to get another, I don't know, what, dozen, two dozen, you know, before it's all said and done, hopefully. But but it's not going to last forever. And and even my kids joined me on the couch today, not for the entire match. You know, they don't have that attention span, but they did for, for brief moments. And, you know, my one son, Dylan, was cheering for, for Djokovic and my other son was going for Nadal. And um, my daughter went for Nadal as well. She liked the pink and purple outfit, I got to say. <laughs> nice. but, uh, okay. but I was glad that they joined me. And I said, like, hey, take this in. This reminds me of watching tennis with, with my old man when I was a kid, getting, getting hooked on the McEnroe Connors Becker era. And, um, and for my kids to sit down, I'm like, watch these two, because they're going to retire by the time you're, you know, still in elementary school here, but you're getting a chance to see yeah, two of the greatest tennis players ever. And uh, it's going to be pretty tough for anyone to come along and challenge some of the records these two have, have put together along with Federer. That's for, for darn sure. Yeah, yeah, it's truly astonishing. The numbers Djokovic did have a very good chance in this match, I felt just going back to that third set. It's tied 2-2. You feel like Djokovic is starting to gain some upper hand in the rallies. He won the second set 6-1. He's playing quality tennis. Has a look at break point in that 2-2 game. Nadal just kind of digging in, keeping balls in play. And uh, Novak surprisingly misses a forehand in the net. And that is kind of when the tide turned. Nadal holds serve and then wins 12 of the next 13 points. And suddenly you blink and it's 5-2 and this match is, is nearly over. And we've seen that obviously in the past. Um, Djokovic now leading this head-to-head 29-28. I wonder if Nadal gets the opportunity to tie that at Roland Garros. That is certainly possible. And Look, for me, given that I've, I've grown up watching these players and still watching them through the entirety of their careers, it is the best rivalry for me in the history of the sport. Probably just a personal connection to it, seeing all of these matches. I, I don't know where it fits in for you. It, it doesn't rank as high, and I'm not saying it isn't the greatest you know, rivalry that the sport has had. It just doesn't resonate with me as others have, mm-hmm. and, and it's probably because I'm a little bit older. And so for me, I didn't grow up watching these two guys play each other. I was already you know, well into my 20s when they both showed up on the scene. I was pretty much into the start of my you know, career uh, reporting on tennis and covering tennis tournaments, and that sort of changed my lens and my perspective as well. So even though there's other rivalries that haven't played the same number of times or in the same number of huge moments, you know, with big major titles on the line, for me, it's more of like a Becker versus Edberg or a Sampras versus Agassi mm-hmm. or a Graf and Navratilova and those kind of rivalries, because that's back when the sport was more pure for me, meaning more innocent, more watching it through the lens of a, a fan or as a child or a kid growing up, which, uh, you know, we shouldn't discount the effect that tennis has on, on kids. And sure, there's lots of kids growing sure. up now who are growing up with this being their rivalry that they'll tell their kids about, that they'll talk about when they grow up. 
and, and, and us adults like to dissect it and analyze, overanalyze it and, and almost take all the fun out of it. Let's not forget there's tons of kids out there that are living this up, soaking it up and just, you know, they're going out on the tennis court and pretending that they're these two players. And so I wasn't able to do that with these two guys, which is why for me, the rivalry isn't probably, you know, number one in my books. Yeah, uh, very well said, I think. Uh, and one thing, yeah, that you sort of hit on is just appreciate these guys while they're still here. Appreciate the fact that we're seeing Nadal versus Djokovic. We see Federer versus Djokovic, Federer versus Nadal, all of these matchups. You see so much venom between the fan bases that they're always so much, so constantly much rivaling and yelling and screaming at one another. It was like, you know what? Djokovic can be your favorite guy and you can just appreciate Nadal and vice versa. If you're a big Fed fan, it's okay to like the other two as well. That's, that's, I think, been my approach to it over the past handful of years, just taking a step back and be like, you know, these three are all ridiculously, unbelievably great tennis players. Um, I wonder if social media existed back in the 70s and 80s, what fans of like McEnroe, Connors, (laughs) you know, Navratilova, Chris Everett, how ugly all those rivalries would have got. It was, it was way better back then not to have all this negative side of what social media brings to the table there's lots of great things you know and you and i have connected with so many awesome people that we've never met in person but you kind of feel like you know them through the the twitterverse uh, but there's definitely that negative the venom as you mentioned which uh, i could do without just appreciate cheer for who you want to cheer for why you got to be sour on someone else though you know Exactly. That's why we have the mute button. Use it if you need it. Um, we'll move on uh, to the women's side in Rome. And we didn't expect to be leading with a doubles discussion in Rome, but I love that we are doing so because Canadian Sharon Fishbin and her partner Juliana Almos uh, captured the women's doubles trophy at the Italian Open. They beat Marketa Vondrasova and Christina Mladenovic 4-6-7-5-10-5, winning the title. Now four career titles for Fishman, And this is no doubt the biggest. It's a WTA 1000 and you look at the week that they had just like fantastic resiliency first firstly they took out the top seeds Elise Mertens and Seisu Wei a great doubles tandem and then you go over to their quarterfinals match they were down against Coco Goff and Kuder Matova they rallied to win a second set tie break and then take a 10 point super super breaker two more wins and now hoisting a trophy and uh Fishman basically calling it the biggest and maybe most rewarding victory of her career which is just just phenomenal given uh that she stepped aside from this sport for two years we didn't really think we would see her back on tour yeah, what a fantastic story. One of many Canadian comeback stories, return to the game stories. And and not just coming back to the sport and, and not just coming back and doing okay, but yep. these players like her and Rebecca Marino um, are coming back and, and thriving. And so it's, it's fantastic to see for Sharon. Uh, in terms of players that I still will admit that I root for, that I cheer for, uh, Sharon Fishman is in my top five that I will, you know, be completely unashamed to say, I'm rooting for this player. I mm-hmm. want them to win. I want them to succeed. And I'm happy when they do. She's just, you know, aside from the tennis aspect of it all, she's just so nice, so friendly, so engaging. Um, and uh, so to see what her and Julianne almost have done, you know, with the success this year, almost who's done well with um, Gabby Dabrowski as well. She's clearly benefiting from playing with our Canadian women this year. Um, so, so I want to say she's a pseudo Canadian in my books. Uh, but it's, it's been pretty fantastic. So Sharon, we're really happy for you. And, uh, you know, as I said, I think earlier, she just turned 30 in December and, uh, so many players who were thriving in their thirties, uh, Sharon Fishman, just, uh, another one of those clearly. 
Yeah, it's wonderful to see and uh, moving up in the rankings rapidly. Uh, Juliana almost will actually be 30th now in doubles and just behind her, Sharon Fishman, uh, 31st, which will be a, a new career high in doubles, a fantastic ranking. And that's two titles now on the year for Fishman. And uh, it feels like almost is maybe the partner uh, to be going forward in this 2021 season, but she won a title in, in Monterey with Katerina Bondarenko. So she has the versatility to obviously play and have success with different doubles partners beating top players and uh, again just incredible that uh, as you hit on sustained excellence coming off a two-year long absence um i think we were just so satisfied at the time that oh it's great to see sharon fitchman back on a tennis court playing uh giving this uh career another shot but to play this well uh really really astounding and you know watch out for this team at Roland Garros. Seriously. I, I think we normally think about Gabby Dabrowski as a potential contender for, for one of these titles, but you have to include Sharon Fitchman and almost in the mix. And also how good are you feeling if you're a Canadian tennis fan about what our Billie Jean King cup team can be like, Oh my goodness. Everyone's healthy. If you've got mm. Bianca and Layla uh, as our singles players and potentially Gabby and Sharon, who used to play doubles together back in the day, if you've got them as the doubles team, Holy smokes, man, that, that team's going to give any country some, uh, you know, a good run for their money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we already we already saw it just the other month in Billie Jean King Cup, and we were missing most of our horses there and still delivered. We'll continue on uh, over to the single side and Iga Sviantek collecting the title, title and I, I'm going to call this one a statement tournament. She dropped just one set en route to the trophy in Rome and then just Blue Carolina Pliskova off the court in this final. Six love, six love in 45 minutes. This is the first double bagel score in the history of this event in the final. Pliskova won just 13 points in this match. So it wasn't like one of those score lines where maybe you had a bunch of deuce games and they were all going Sviantek's way. Uh, She was just ruthless in this match. Baseline power, completely taking control on return. Lushkova was not getting remotely into those service games. It was very impressive start to finish. Obviously very disappointing from Pliskova's side, but wow. Uh, what a statement from Iga Spiontek coming off a of Roland Garros title last year to, to win a title like this with uh, Roland Garros just a couple weeks away. 19 years old. And uh, I, I got to say, when I saw this being the final matchup, and I'm not just saying this now that you know we have the result, but I thought, Oh, this is going to be a beatdown. Like, I, I don't think this is going to be a very competitive one. And, and, and that's, you know, to say something like that when you've got a, a terrific player like Pliskov on the other side of the net, I think that speaks more volumes about what Igas Fiontek is bringing, you know, to the, the table right now on clay courts. Um, uh, someone on Twitter it was uh, at the tennis talker. I think that's Chris Goldsmith. He doesn't have his name yep. on his Twitter anymore. Is it Chris? He's fantastic with stats, and he said it's only the second time in Pliskova's professional career that she's been double bageled. Uh, and with a serve like hers, I'm, I'm not right. surprised, right, mm-hmm. that that's only happened once before. I'm, I'm surprised it's ever happened, to be honest. Uh, and oddly enough, it was back in 2009 at a tournament in Italy against a Polish uh, tennis player. So I, oh. I don't know if there's some sort of weird, you know, karma going on there, or some <laughs> sort of mojo, but uh, yeah. Uh, th- this Polish player, my goodness, Fiontek, is she something else? And uh, to beat the quality of players she did, you know, with those score lines and uh, yeah, with Roland Garros coming up and, and, and Ash Barty and Simona Halep's health, potentially a bit of a question mark. Uh, Fiontek is, is a favorite as the defending champion. And, um, you know, that might be a, an odd thing to say in normal times. You might say, well, she's defending champ. Of course, she's going to be the favorite. But, you know, at this age, 
to, to potentially back it up, wouldn't that be something? Yeah, it would, it would be unbelievable. Um, she's definitely the favorite for me. And uh, I, th- I also think she's just one of these big match players. You think of her sort of big time wins, obviously a Roland Garros victories over Simona Halep, uh, Sophia Cannon in the final, uh, that she kind of thrives in the big match stage almost reminds me of Stan Favrinka in a way, uh, maybe a bit of a different, difficult comparable uh, Stan who does have three grand slam titles kind of delivered later in his career, but she loves the big stage and obviously she loves clay. And it's interesting because she has a dynamic, powerful game from the baseline, but she also moves just exceptionally well. She slides all over the court and, uh, you think of not only endurance, but her physicality and, and speed on the court that she is going to be an incredibly tough out once we get to roll on Garros. And as you mentioned, we got to touch on what happened to Simona Halep, because probably if you're shortlisting contenders for French Open, Simona Halep is always within my like top three to top five every time. And sadly, she suffers this calf tear while she's leading Angelique Kerber. I think it was six, one, three all. And suddenly she tears her calf. Um, She's already had treatment for it. She was sort of unclear in her social media post, just saying like, I'll do everything I can within this recovery to get back on the court. Uh, but there is a very good chance she's going to miss the French Open if you think it's just two weeks away. Yeah, that doesn't bode well. It's disappointing because I feel like we've seen so little of Halep over the last year through the pandemic. One of those players that I'm really eager to watch play. I love watching Simona's matches. And, you know, when you think about it, she should probably have a couple of French Open titles to her name already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, been in a few finals, obviously, but uh, I would have loved to have seen her at full health in this year's edition. But it doesn't really sound, you know, it doesn't give me confidence when you hear about the nature of the, the injury and how little time there is to get back in, in good shape and, and full health. And, um, you know, let's talk maybe a little bit about our Canadian player who we're wondering, um, maybe not so much about full health, but, but full preparation for Bianca Andreescu. Um, coming into Roland Garros this year. Yeah, look, um, again, she's going to miss a, another tournament, obviously miss the Italian Open and then a, another withdrawal. And they stated as sort of illness, um, but it was it was now going back a couple of weeks that she had COVID-19 and never indicated any severe symptoms from having the virus. We see her training and practicing on the clay. She's getting ready, but... Um, Time she can't, is get a, in. she can't get into Italy, right? Like she couldn't get into the country. Right. They didn't let her in quarantine again, I guess. Yeah. And it just feels like time is of the essence right now. And it is shrinking of this clay court season. You figure she needs some kind of warm up tournament before you play Grand Slam tennis again. It's already been um, what going on basically two years since we what saw her play a clay court match. This is crazy. I mean, I recall a match uh, in 2019 defeating Boskova in the first round and that was the last that we saw her on clay and uh, I, I think she has a great game for the clay court surface which makes it all the more frustrating but she has to get into one of these lead up tournaments ahead of the event um, I, I think it probably brings back tough lingering feelings the last time we saw her on court was getting injured in the final of Miami but uh, yeah we are running out of time on this season if she can get into one of these lead up events uh, and then hopefully be fresh and ready to go for Roland Garros. Maybe you can salvage this portion of the season ahead of Wimbledon. It's uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, I nearly dropped a bomb there. It's absolutely amazing how long it's been since we've seen her on clay and how much change has occurred, not just for her, not just for the tennis world, but all of us since that time. It's like life has completely flipped. And uh, I mean, in that time, she's become a Grand Slam champion. In that time, she's endured a 15, almost 16-month absence from the tour. 
uh, come back and, and played lights out in Miami, as, as we've previously mentioned. And uh, it'll be great to see her back, hopefully. And, and even if she doesn't get a warm-up tournament, if there's any player that you can say, you know, if we're looking for the silver lining or the glass half full here, it's that if there's anyone that knows how to come back with limited match play and still play exceptional tennis, it's Bianca Andreescu. Yeah, and uh, I, I believe we are going to get her in Strasbourg. That that is what I've heard. That she took a wild card into this event, which is 250, right before Roland Garros. Um, knock on wood, nothing changes there. That she can play in France right ahead of the French Open. I don't think that should be too stressful. It should be a smaller draw. At least get a bit of match play, two to three matches even ahead of Roland Garros, go in healthy and, and play Grand Slam tennis again. I, I think that's all what we're, we're rooting for at this point. Um, one person who is making a return to the play as we go back on the men's side, Roger Federer will be in Geneva, Switzerland this week and uh, the top seed at the event. What are your expectations, I guess, for, for Roger going in here? <laughs> I mean, it's been so long since we've seen him play on clay. It's been the same as, as Bianca. It's been two years. He hasn't played on clay since 2019 Roland Garros either. And, uh, you know, I was looking through his 2019 season earlier this evening. He went 53-10 and 10 that year with four titles. Uh, of course, was two match points away in Wimbledon. Uh, but he also did well on clay when he made his return that year, pushing Dominic Team in the quarterfinals, quarterfinals sorry, of uh, Madrid, I believe it was. Made the semis of Roland Garros, losing to Nadal, which was you know, nothing to be ashamed of. Um, expectations. I've got none, Ben. I've got absolutely none. Uh, I just hope that he can get through it healthy. And, uh, and that's what I hope for him for the rest of this season. I hope we can see a healthy Roger Federer play a consistent schedule. Uh, and like we were saying earlier with Rafa and Novak, but even more so with Roger, because the clock really is ticking as he's going to turn 40 this summer, uh, which just is perplexing to even say that out loud to me. Um, but I just hope he can be healthy so that whatever happens, Roger can finish off the last year, two years, three years, maybe uh, in, in good health. Yeah, look, Roger, to me, obviously, he's he's a laid back, easygoing personality. But one thing I know about Roger Federer is he loves to win and he wouldn't be hanging around just showing up at tournaments just to play. Um, he's there to, to win matches. And I think this is going to be the perfect environment environment for him to start out, obviously, with his hometown Uh major home crowd favorite. He has the top seed. And I was just taking a look at the draw. And honestly, this top half is very, very comfortable. I would say early on great opportunity, maybe a Pablo Andahar early on uh, Christian Guerin could be interesting for a quarterfinal. Actually the name that really stands out to me in the top half, as you mentioned earlier, Casper Root, fantastic clay court player. You wonder if Federer can win a couple of matches, set up a potential semifinal clash with the Norwegian. I think that would be a great test for him on clay. Someone who's playing awesome on the surface right now. And then on the other side, Number two seed at the event, coming off that tough loss to Nadal, Denis Shapovalov, back for more tennis now in Switzerland. So it's actually a pretty interesting 250. No, I agree. And I, I mean, I'd love to see that one-two in the final on clay. That would be a lot of fun yeah. to watch, I feel like. And the other thing about Federer is he doesn't have to be perfect. It's going to take him a while to, to find his rhythm in his game, not just his tennis game after only playing one event this year, but his clay court game as well, because it's been so long. But he's still got that holy crap, I'm playing Roger Federer factor, which is going to intimidate opponents. I mean, if I had to go out there against Federer, even a Federer who hasn't played much, I'm still sweating big time before I even play the first point. And so let's not underestimate, you know, just the mental factor, especially against some of these players who, 
yeah, aren't top 10 players necessarily in his half of the draw. I think that could also, you know, bode well for him, even if his game isn't clicking at the level he'd hope it, it might be. Yeah. And uh, of course, fortunately for his game, he has so many options and so many different ways of beating you on the court. He can get away with C minus tennis and pick up wins. We've seen it in the past. Uh, we'll move on here. And uh, just to update sort of locally or provincially, at least, um, we've all been itching to get back on the tennis court and uh, the Ontario government. Uh, the latest update we're getting is we'll have no large sports gatherings um, whatsoever this summer. Um, and we won't have any concerts either. Obviously this is raising the question to an event like the national bank open, of course, where we're going to have uh, we're used to having thousands of fans on the grounds at Aviva center. Um, I think you and I were both preparing for a scenario where we would have no fans in the stands, obviously given circumstances, but we were preparing for events in Toronto and Montreal. And now it's obviously uh, could be in doubt. Yeah. It doesn't bode well for the national bank open um, tennis. Canada did release a statement this week uh, saying that at this point, they're still very hopeful that something can be put together because the tournament does generate 90% of their revenue for the year. So that's obviously a big deal. Um, they're talking about the no fans option. They're talking about perhaps limited fans. So basically what I read in that statement was it's not going to happen with full capacity. And, and that's not surprising given how things are going in Ontario. Uh, and then there is a worst case scenario. And this is sort of a, a third option that hadn't been previously discussed. And, and we'd never heard of either in any of our chats with our, our folks at Tennis Canada was that potentially the event could happen south of the border move the National Bank Open to a spot like, say, Cincinnati and uh, and still call it the National Bank Open, but have it on foreign soil, which I think would be, you know, really disappointing uh, that it would have to come to that. But at least it would allow the tournament in some way, shape or form to occur, get some broadcasting money out of it, I suppose, um, and 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 keep it going in some way. But gosh, it would be such a shame if, if Canada for the second year in a row can't host its two premier tournaments in Montreal and Toronto. So fingers crossed that at the very least we can have the players come here and, and know that they're, they're close, even if we can't go see it live ourselves. Yeah, that's the hope. They, they certainly seem very intent on at least getting this tournament played. I'm very hopeful it can be in Toronto and Montreal if circumstances are such that that's just not possible. Cincinnati would certainly make sense as an option if you had a scenario basically playing back-to-back Masters 1000s, maybe some sort of, I don't know if a bubble environment would be necessary at that time. Um, situation might be different in Ohio. I'm not sure about um, COVID numbers there. Vaccines, obviously, we're hoping um, we've reached a, a scenario where over half of our province has been vaccinated, maybe 75%, 80% by the summertime. That would be nice, um, which could maybe change the dynamic and change the chances of this tournament happening in Toronto and Montreal. We'll get to better news, though. We talked about Roger Federer playing in Geneva. We, of course, had an awesome giveaway of one of his center court shoes from on running. And now we have another one. We've been in touch with on running and we have the Roger clubhouse shoe up for grabs for a listener. So very exciting. We have another contest giveaway. Yeah. We got to take advantage of the fact that Roger's back here and uh, on running has been really great to partner with us. Once again, the clubhouse shoe is kind of more of a casual shoe. Uh, they've got a couple options. One's in white, one's in black, I believe. So, you know, Google that, check it out. And if you're interested in, uh, entering then uh you know please um get in touch with us uh ben you're gonna have to remind me i just went blank what did we agree was going to be the uh, way to enter <laughs> for this this giveaway 
Yeah, so to enter the giveaway for the Roger Clubhouse shoe from On Running, you just have to retweet this podcast on Twitter. That's one option to enter. Or if you're on Instagram, when you see our story of the podcast, you'll have an option to share that story. So if you reshare our story on Instagram or if you retweet this podcast on Twitter, you can enter. Also, we will have a post on Matchpoint Canada on Facebook if you happen to share that post on Facebook. Uh, you're also into the contest. So three different options to, to enter um, for this giveaway for the Roger Clubhouse shoe. I know we already have a fan from Montreal Puelo who, who won the last one, the center court shoe. So uh, another opportunity. And uh, also just want to say that there is a time limit on this. So please get your uh, retweets in uh, for this contest by uh, Saturday at midnight this week. Uh, so we have enough time to tabulate all the names and put them into a draw. And, and I'm going to throw this out here cold. I haven't run this by you, Ben, but if you'd like a second ballot into the draw, leave us a review on uh, Apple podcast, because like we, we would love to see some feedback and honest to God, I, I don't even care what kind of feedback it is. I just, I, I want to hear uh, from our listeners. So if you want a second entry uh, for this Roger clubhouse, then leave us a review with your name on, on Apple podcasts and, uh, and you'll get another chance to, to qualify. Perfect. There you go. So four different chances, ways of getting in the contest for the Roger Clubhouse shoe from On Running. We thank them for this promotion. Uh, this has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next week.